Welcome everyone. Some of our friends just got back from the Common Ground Retreat at Holy Spirit and other of our friends are just getting toward the middle of their retreat with Rebecca and Chaz out at Kwanania. Nice to think about them out there. And uh, before I go on and talk about renunciation and set us up for our small groups tonight, uh, just to remind us, you know, we've been learning this map, the Buddha's instructions for mindfulness of breathing. You can find notes by going to the website where I sent it out to the group, so you have an email with it. But it's also on our website under teachings, resources, and then under that resource or on that resource page, there's a link there under Mindfulness of Breathing Instructions. And you can get the basic 16 instructions that tonight we went through the first 12. And you can also get some notes that Nancy Vivian has compiled from some of our uh, teachers and uh, in our community, not this community, but the wider community um, on the Buddha's instructions. And uh, so you know that when I'm guiding us on Monday nights in the guided sit, of course, I'm on purpose moving through the map so you can learn it. But that doesn't mean your home sit will look like that. Sometimes it might, where you systematically, but sometimes it won't. And remember, generally, we're assessing the density or the grossness, subtlety of the mind. And we need along that map that the Buddha gave us, when the mind is really gross, it means we're just doing our best to come back to the body and just to feel the actual sensations of breathing in and breathing out, to connect, to to sustain, to be willing to begin again, to be willing to begin again. And that's what good practice looks like when our mind is all over the place, caught up, strong emotions, things like that, haven't really let go of the day. And other times when the mind settles down, then if you keep coming back to the gross sensations of breathing in, breathing out, it won't work very well. Because the mind, what's actually going to be predominant for the mind, interesting for the mind, relevant to the mind, will be some of these more subtle aspects, like feeling the whole body breathing in and out, noticing that the mind is relating to the sensations in a calm way. And that this calm way of relating affects the whole experience of the body. And that begins to spread. Or maybe more subtle, noticing that lightness, that uplifting or movement of energy feeling we call rapture or joy. Or noticing a more resonant inner relaxation of the heart into contentedness and inner happiness or ease of heart. Or doing more of this work of noticing the feeling tone as you breathe in and feel breathe out. But now, because the mind is so settled in the pleasantness of ease, sukha, it has some immunity to feeling tone, right? It's feeling good, so it's not thrown around by feeling tone. So it can actually observe the relatively subtle, pleasant or unpleasant feelings that come and go just because that's what feeling does. You have a little fragment of a thought, and it's pleasant. Or you have a little fragment of a not-so-pleasant thought, 
and it's unpleasant. Or you have a little twinge in your knee, unpleasant. You have a little wave of rapture, pleasant. But now the mind is observing, breathing in, observing the feeling tone, breathing out, observing the feeling tone, and learning to just let it be a feeling tone. It doesn't need, this is a really good place of renunciation. I mean, ultimately, renunciation is the renunciation of feeding off a feeling tone, letting our fear of unpleasant and desire or craving for pleasant feeling tone, letting that drive our lives. So in this really microscopic way, at this place in the practice, we're retraining the mind to see feeling tone and let it be, which is the next instruction, the eighth, it just leads to a, a more quiet because mostly what's agitating our mind has to do with our reaction to feeling tone. Whether it's just having a perception and liking it or not liking it. So often at that level, it's just, just different perceptions are flitting through the mind. Each one has a particular feeling tone causing a little agitation in the mind. But when we have this more wise or neutral relationship to feeling tone, Things settle down. And then we can look at the mind, the activity mind, in much the same way we were earlier looking at the whole body. But now we're looking at the whole mind, the activity of the mind and the space of the mind, just what it is. And we're beginning to appreciate it as a natural happening. right? And again, we because of the stillness, we have some immunity. We can look at the mind without being seduced by it. So we have some steadiness, some samadhi, and we're just observing the mind and appreciating it as nature. It'd be like sitting and looking over the woods or the meadow or the mountains and just seeing the perfection in it. It's not that it's actually perfect. I mean, there are rotting trees and, you know, but there's something, it just intuitively, it feels just right. To just, wow. And that's that's what we can do with the mind. Just observing the mind. So the first is just to notice the mind. And then to begin to appreciate it as its own thing. The activity, the space of the mind as its own thing. Which leads, because now the mind is leaving the mind alone. Knowing is leaving the mind alone. So the mind gets even quieter. So we notice that. Notice the greater quieting, stilling, concentrating of the mind, more peace of stillness, right? And then the last instruction, this is number 12, there are four more, which have more to do with wisdom. But the, the next of this set of four is, the, it's translated as the releasing of the mind. So breathing in, seeing that the mind is released of problems. There's no personal problem here in the mind. Breathing out, noticing that release. The mind is empty of problems. So that just takes us a little further through the map tonight. Mm-hmm. You're noticing, you're breathing in, noticing the concentration. You're breathing out, noticing the concentration. So it's this in terms of like what's the object of awareness, stillness or steadiness, the non-wavering of the mind. 
Well, it's it's often useful to think of it in the negative. It's the not seeing, like, like the, and it's not like the mind's out there. It's, you know, it's like we're right. The awareness is right in the middle of it, but it's the not sensing any problem. So it's the absence. It's really like the absence. It's released of any friction, any weight, any problem. Yeah. Instead of what you find, it's what you don't find. So, renunciation. So remember, we've been talking about mundane right view, understanding the lawfulness, things happen lawfully through cause and effect, the seed or the real ingredient of that lawful unfolding in terms of my reality is intention, the intention or motivations in our mind. We start to get a sense of what's skillful and what's unskillful. As that understanding matures, over time, then right view becomes super mundane right view, which means basically the mind, the wisdom in the mind is understanding that the deepest understanding of karma, cause and effect, intentions matter, is not taking karma personally. Like that's a, you know, a, a powerful move the mind makes. It's like to understand the naturalness of cause and effect, and it doesn't mean that we step outside of karma. In a sense, there's still cause and effect. But what it, when, just from an ego point of view, when we're in a world of cause and effect, I really want to learn my lessons, right? I want to know what sets emotion skillful results, what sets emotion unskillful results. But as I sense that, that it really matters, I also sense that really wanting to get it right gets in the way of discerning more subtly what's skillful and unskillful. So I have to abandon the taking cause and effect personally in order to get really good at it. Right? Because I'm I'm basically, the mind realizes that it's better to invest in awareness than in being the one who wants to get it right. Because awareness will reveal what's skillful and unskillful and it just gets fed right back into the next moment of knowing. So the reason I just shared that is to get a sense of the lawfulness of going from a more mundane, self-centered right view to a more sublime right view is just nature. It isn't about being a good yogi, good meditator or bad meditator. Because how could it be? The whole point of what the Buddha is saying is it's all the activity of nature. No center to it. So there's a natural, uh, organic development. If we, just from a personal point of view, start noticing it matters how I show up, it matters how I relate, greed always leads to trouble, non-greed always makes things work a little better, And then the more we pay attention to what works and doesn't work, we realize like really caring, really wanting to get it right, taking the lawfulness personally gets in the way of me observing it and being intimate with it. So I drop that. So I, so in a sense, I can be more pure awareness, which just allows the skillfulness to develop more and more. 
So <clears throat> then this super mundane view, sort of awareness without a center, non-grasping, the re, you know, as Ajahn Chah calls it, the reality of non-grasping. Then there's some, like, what does, what does that mind lead to? Because this world comes out of view. So when we have self-centered view, then we have self-centered thought, right? So the first two parts of the Eightfold Path that we're talking about is right view and right intention or right thought or right resolve or right aspiration. So that's more the movement part of view. View is a way of seeing. Out of a way of seeing comes the beginnings of action, which initiate as thought or resolve. So this could be a really good thing to talk about in our small groups tonight. When we have a self-centered view, then we have self-centered fear and self-centered greed. And then we have self-centered action coming out of that greed or self-centered action coming out of that fear. And then we have a world that looks like this world. So we want to start making the connection, the lawful connection between view and intention and action and then the world we end up having or inhabiting. And then, of course, that world comes back and reinforces the view. So that's samsara. That's the whole cycle of samsara. We create this world because there's a view and then intentions, motivations come out of that view and actions, what we say, what we do, how we struggle. And then because we're all struggling, interacting with our various struggles, then that's the world we inhabit. Now, right view. What kind of intentions come out of right view? What kind of actions come out of that? So, just to get the list, so out of right view comes the intention of renunciation, fewness of wants, simplicity, generosity. That's one intention or motivation. Goodwill or metta, loving kindness, non-harming or virtue, right? So this commitment to non-harming. So these are the three natural expressions of a mind established in right view. And then you can imagine, so what would those actions in the world look like if those were the motivations motivating action? And then what kind of world would that person inhabit with those sorts of intentions and actions? What sort of world would be set in motion? So you can talk in your small groups tonight about your own experience. And remember, you can look at any place in that that circle and that cycle and you can figure out the other pieces so you just bring to mind a world you inhabited today that was really messy and divisive and tight right and then you can kind of look back okay what sort of thoughts intentions resolves did i have did these other do i imagine these other people had what sort of view did they flow out of what picture of the world, what understanding of the world, what values did those intentions flow out of? And what kind of world are we setting in motion? And how is that world affecting our minds, our view? So it would be nice, like in your small groups, for example, bring either a really harmonious situation or really what felt like a really beautiful, a really free moment, 
you had in the last couple of weeks or really tight, difficult moment. And then try to see all the pieces from view to intention or thought or resolve to actions to the kind of sort of world we have in community together because of those actions. And then the effect of those that world on the mind, what gets triggered or reinforced, shaped in the mind because we're inhabiting that kind of world. There's a very poignant page in Sharon Salzberg's very personal book, Faith. Hopefully some of you have read it. You might want to take a look at it at some time. And right at the beginning, almost right at the beginning, she had a really difficult upbringing with uh, lots of loss of her parents and um, and her one of her grandparents, I think, too, died. And uh, I remember, well, those of you my age will remember when color TVs came out. I don't know, it must have been in the mid-60s sometime. And, you know, the big thing, for at least families like mine, you know, who has a color TV and who doesn't have a color TV. And uh, I remember my uncle, uncle and aunt, they were... They always, that family always struggled. There are a lot of kids, I forget now, 10 kids in that family, maybe 11. And they grew up pretty close to us, so we, we sort of always saw them. And there are just lots of tragedies. But but one of the most poignant for me, you know, so I was seven or eight, something like that. And we went out to their place for Christmas morning. And uh, before we did, they got a color TV. And by the time we got out there at, one, one of the kids throwing things around had cracked the screen and the color TV. <laughs> yeah. And I just remember Christmas was always a really difficult point in time to me because I saw from a very early age, like at five or so, how what I was going to get was never going to match my craving. And it was always disappointing and uh, it just felt like a real setup. I was a Buddhist from a very young age. <laughs> but anyway, Sharon talk, has a story about that um, on page four in Faith. She talks about how uh, she was, after her mom had died and her father, I think, had mental illness. I'm forgetting the story. Maybe some of you remember. So he wasn't around. And she was living with her grandparents and they couldn't afford the color TV. And of course, she as a young kid really longed for one. She would have been older than me. And uh, to compensate, she says, my grandmother, who cared a lot about me, brought, uh, bought a special plastic sheet to place over the black and white screen. I hadn't heard of these. To create a faint illusion of color. This rainbow aura bore no relationship to the figures and settings of the stories depicted in the programs. I wanted to rip off that bizarre front and plead for the real thing. Instead, I silently tolerated the charade, not betraying my desire. I didn't care about anything, or so I hoped it seemed. I came to know very well the protection of distance of a narrowed, compressed world. Though it was my own act of pulling back, I felt forsaken. I told myself a story 
that there was no way out of the world that turned me in upon myself. So, you know, either we are crazed, you know, whether it's relatively politically correct the way we're crazed, or it's, you know, crazed, like, I really want, I'm going to get, I need to have. Or we're so disappointed, we've had a life where that kind of crazed action hasn't delivered, that we give up, like Sharon's talking about, and we turn inward. And we basically inhabit an idea that I'm not going to be able to get. But it's not its not the joy of renunciation we're talking about. It's a real sense of betrayal. And this is really the setup of a mind dependent on craving. And the next page, Sharon, I remember this cartoon when I was a kid, uh, this Peanuts cartoon. There's a whole series where Lucy is a psychiatrist with a sign, you know, I forget what the sign says. Doctor is in or? Yeah, yeah. So, and then her line to Charlie Brown is, the problem with you is that you're you. <laughs> Crush, Charlie Brown asks, well, what in the world can I do about that? And this is a great line. Lucy responds in the final frame, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. <laughs> and so the problem, you know, is that it's this the problem that the self has, right? I need, I want, or I never get what I want, this sort of victim mentality. So we've created a self that I'll I'll be happy if I get or I'm never gonna get it. But it's a big self story. And so Lucy points that out. We probably know that or intuit that problem. And the real flip is with right view is we go from the problem the self has, I just need this and then I'll be happy, or I never get what I want, I'm never going to be happy. Both are suffering. There's a little bit more juice, of course, in thinking, if I get this, then I'll be happy. Right? There's still hope. But hope and fear always go together. During the retreat, we were all, some of us were just that. I read from Trungpa Rinpoche, he was quoting Milarepa, it was ac- actually the demons saying to Milarepa when he had subjugated them, demons being his desires, right? he subjugated them with wisdom and by being friendly to them. And then they became his friends and they sang to him um, something like, Beware, demons await you on the steep slope of fear and hope. Right? They're hiding in ambush along the steep slope of fear and hope, which is where we normally have it. So we switch from the problems we have to the problem that this view is, right? or the problem that the self is, self-view is. And that's a real profound shift in practice. of what to cover. So one line from the Dhammapada, 
If by giving up a lesser happiness, a greater happiness can be found, a wise person would renounce the lesser for the sake of the greater. So even there, though, let's say we're not in that um, depressed, really difficult place of giving up on the world, always feeling betrayed, always feeling like we're never going to get what we want, and we're still in the more excited place, like if I get that, if I just play my cards right, I'll get what I want, and then I'll be happy, whatever it is. I was, during the first sit from 7 to 7.30, I was having some really peaceful moments. And then, it's just like, I forget what I was, some sort of, it's like the mind takes the real joy and it starts constructing a future that makes the joy make sense. Which, of course, destroys the joy, right? It's like the mind doesn't trust joy for no reason. So it constructs a reality which is out there in the future that makes the joy that is arising make sense. Oh, that's why you're happy, because this might happen. But of course, as the mind is thinking about that positive thing you might get, I might get, then there's tension there. There's no more the cause for the joy that arose because joy, real joy, arises due to cessation. The cessation of what's fragmenting the mind, the cessation of what's agitating the mind, what's dividing our experience up. When that ceases, that activity ceases, then the natural inherent joy is there to be realized or experienced. It's so tragic. It should break our heart. Like the Buddha says in, in so many of his teachings, you know, we have basically some version of we have, or he, was, he wouldn't say we, he'd say you. You have seen this enough times to be dispassionate, to have learned your lesson. You don't need to see this anymore. You know this. It's now time to live according to what you know. It's like to be willing to And this is why that instruction that I talked about after the guided meditation is so important. When we have a lot of stability, a lot of inner calm and ease, to really get interested in feeling tone. We have to train the mind not to be seduced or confused by the feeling tones that arise. It's so easy to get seduced by joy and to think we have to think about something that's exciting so that our thinking matches in our deluded sense, the thinking matches the joy we're feeling. Can there be joy and just let it be joy? Or do we have to have a reason from a you know, conceptual self-point of view for the joy? That's the question. That's what we have to learn, actually, to have joy without anything else. And it's actually harder to be with joy in that direct, immediate, non-contaminated way than it is with pain. Because the instinct to proliferate proliferate with joy is very deep. At least with pain, the proliferation hurts so much that eventually we get feedback, like obsessing about our anger, for example. It's just like, like that graphic image of 
not the second dart, but the second and third and fifth and eight hundredth dart. It just hurts so much to be obsessing about our hate or other negative emotions. But with joy, there's always the surface uh, excitement, juiciness, as we inflate our life, expand, imagine, hope, that we can miss how tight it is just below the surface. (laughs) This is a great image. Some of you know um, Stephen Mitchell. Joseph Goldstein mentioned this uh, in one of his talks, but he's, Stephen Mitchell's done this really creative work looking at some translations of all kinds of things, including the Old Testament and Rilke and Greek myths and what else has he translated? A lot of interesting things. But uh, he tra- retranslated the, or discussed at least, the myth of Sisyphus which we always think of this poor guy, you know, having to push that boulder up. And we think it like as an image of being in a hell realm. But he talks about the reason that is, is that he's in love with the boulder. He's in love with the activity. He's in love with the idea of pushing it up, of what might happen. Right? It's that infatuation. It's like we're going to get something from the craving. That is so entrancing for us. So renunciation really comes from the view, the deep view, that it's just stuff. It's always just stuff. It's just a nice experience. It's not more or less than that. The end of the the Heartwood Sutta, the Buddha says, this holy life does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, really beautiful mind, or knowledge and vision, psychic powers for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind. That is the goal of the holy life, its heartwood and its end. So even with a deep state of concentration, we get a taste of this release when the mind is really quiet, like in that 12th step of the mindfulness of breathing instructions, breathing in, knowing the release of the mind, breathing out, knowing the release of the mind. We're noticing the a mind that has no craving in it. Breathing in, noticing the mind has no craving, no agitation of craving. No needing this to be other than what it is. So there's just the mind without any part of the mind wanting, needing things to be other than they are. So what is the mind when there's no part of the mind having a problem with this? What is that mind like? Breathing in, knowing that release. Also in Joseph's talk, um, and in his book as well, which is based on his talks on the Satipatthana Sutta. He quotes a famous Tibetan teacher from the 19th century. It's very funny. Listen up, old bad karma paltrol. That's his name. You dweller in distraction. For ages now you've been entranced, beguiled, and fooled by appearances. Are you aware of that? Are you? 
right in this very instant when you are under the spell of mistaken perception, you've got to watch out. Don't let yourself get carried away by this fake and empty life craving. Your mind is spinning around about, carrying out a lot of useless projects. It is a waste. Give it up. Thinking about the hundred plans you want to accomplish will never, with never enough time to finish them, just weighs down your mind. You're completely distracted by all these projects, which never come to an end, but keep spreading out more like ripples in water. Don't be a fool. For once, just sit tight. You beat your little drum, and your audience thinks it's it's charming to hear. You're reciting words about offering up your body, but you still haven't stopped holding it dear. You make your little symbols go cling, cling, without keeping the ultimate purpose in mind. All this Dharma practice equipment that seems so attractive, forget about it. If you let go of everything, 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 that's the real point. Even though you don't know how to practice, just let go of everything. That is what I really want to say. So that's something we could do this week. We could write a poem to ourselves, right? Or these, they, they're considered like uh, Dharma songs that you sing to yourself. Here's another one from Kabir, <clears throat> an Indian saint. Not really Buddhist, more sort of kind of a yogic mystic. Kabir says, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day the cloth was well woven. So I brought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. Kabir says, listen, my friend, there are few that find the path. So in our small groups tonight, we want to have a different view, like the path. Remember the Buddha's, the deeper teachings, the Four Noble Truths, this whole class on wisdom, It's really, like to sum it up in a simple way, it's really about a reconfiguration of what, how we understand renunciation. From, from a self-view, renunciation sounds like sacrifice. Like, we're supposed to be good, so I shouldn't be watching that much TV, you know, I shouldn't have that much, whatever. And it always feels like a problem. So we, we have to equate, we have to be, at least open our mind that renunciation is synonymous with liberation, with what the heart really wants. And, and this is tricky, but I'll just put it out there. It isn't really about anything on the surface, but playing with renunciation with things on the surface, like what we own, what we do, can really help illuminate how we're holding in an inner way, which is really where renunciation needs to take place. There are wealthy people, powerful people, who have had deep 
insight into the joy, the liberation of letting go, of renunciation. And there are people who have nothing in their life or as poor as you can be and still survive who have more craving than anybody, right? So how much we have outwardly isn't as much of an issue as whether intuitively we're beginning, our mind is beginning to be willing to open to the possibility that the path of real happiness has to do with renunciation, contentment, fewness of wants. doesn't mean that we don't have a car that works, but the, we're not cultivating a mind that's dependent on anything, on anything. Even not getting Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's, which is like, you know, that's the one thing that we think we have the right to cling to, like as long as I have my clear mind. But how about if we don't have that clear mind? Does attachment, does clinging still make sense? Because, you know, well, that you have to cling to. No, clinging doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense no matter what. It's not like we're signing up for Alzheimer's. But, but if it comes, clinging doesn't make sense. So again, for the small groups, remember that cycle. Like Part of what we're doing at this stage of the course is we're getting a sense of how the whole world comes out of view. So we want to see right view or wrong view. It doesn't matter how we do this. So with wrong view, naturally some intentions flow out of wrong view, like self-view, self-centered view. What are those intentions we notice when we have wrong view? And then what kind of ways do we act in the world? And then what kind of world does that reinforce? And then what does that world, how does that world condition my mind and other people's mind? And those moments when we feel we have more right view, like greed doesn't work, anger doesn't work, or even more sublime view, like really beginning to intuit the impersonal nature, the ephemeral nature of all things, what sort of motivations and tensions naturally flow? And you can look what the Buddha says, see if he's right. The renunciation as an intention, harmlessness, non-cruelty as an intention, love, goodwill as an intention. And then what kind of ways do we interact with our kids, our friends, our job, the wider community when that stuff is flowing? And then what what does that kind of world look like? And how does that world condition the mind? And anything else that seems relevant, including what you're learning about the meditation instructions might be feel relevant to bring up in a small group. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.